media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Have you ever been in a situation when you took somebody's promise very seriously uh, and they didn't? Have you ever been in one of those situations? Maybe it was a work situation. And the company, maybe the boss or somebody promised you this. Hey, this is going to happen. You, you come here and you're going to, we're going to be giving you a raise and we're going to let you kind of be over this department. And then it never came about, even though you fulfilled your end of what you thought was the deal. Maybe it's in a relationship. So I said, till death do us part. And, and then they changed the rules on you. Uh, there's constantly times, sometimes it's the sublime, other times it really is the deepest parts of our hearts. When we've received a promise, we took that promise very seriously, and, and then it just seems like with time, maybe somebody else that was involved in that promise, the promise giver, didn't take it as seriously. To be quite fair, I, I can imagine there's many been many times that we even, to our children, gave promises. And, and we were well intended, and then we just found out because of maybe the the activities of the calendar or this, that, or the other that happened, that we weren't able to fulfill those promises. And and they were somewhat innocent in the sense that we didn't purposely try to deceive them. We just weren't faithful to keep those because of circumstances. I, I want that to be in our mind this morning because last week we talked about a God who was sovereign. And this week we're going to talk about, you know, last week a God who was never surprised. This week we're going to talk about a God who keeps his promises. God is faithful. And sometimes that's a strange thing to us. I, I talk with people a lot where they've been kind of burned by the church, sometimes burned by religious folks, and sometimes even burned by, you know, their own parents or somebody that tried to, to, to make their way of faith a path of one direction, and, and yet they saw all this hypocrisy uh, with, even within their family. Folks, we're imperfect people trying to serve a perfect God. And so we're always going to fault a little bit here or left, even with the best of intentions. I've never openly deceived either one of my two girls. I pray that I will never openly deceive my wife or anybody else. And yet I've broken promises. Now, what's the, the promise? Is it my want to? No, it's just I'm an imperfect person living in a very imperfect world. And so, so many times we start to cast that upon our God, that because we're imperfect people, and we don't always keep our promises, we're not always faithful, that somehow maybe God takes on a little bit of that. And I'm here to tell you this morning, more importantly, God's Spirit is here to tell us this morning that that's not who He is. He's faithful. He's never broken a promise. In fact, if anything, we see in the New Testament that every promise that he's ever been made has been made yes and amen in the work of Jesus Christ. And yet you probably know people, maybe you've even walked that road a little bit where you took your own unfaithfulness, you took your own inability to to even do the things and the desires of your heart that were well-intentioned. And maybe some of you kind of sometimes placed that upon God as, well, God, you know, I, I asked for you to heal mom or... I asked you for to keep my marriage together. I asked you for this. I asked you for that. And that somehow, if that doesn't happen because of humanly broken promises or just life, somehow we've cast that upon God. This morning we open up to Acts chapter 2 because it's a time when we begin to see Acts 
uh, in Acts 1 and 2, promises kept, a God who is faithful. And as we begin to look at these important truths, I think that we begin to really realize that all these theological things that we talk about, the sovereignty of God, the faithfulness of God, they have a real-life application to our lives. A lot of things change between Acts chapter 1 Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 1 is kind of a foundational, informational, as we said last week, kind of chapter that kind of gets the place started. They're, they're up in the upper room, 120 followers of Christ. They, they fill the empty spot that was left empty because of the betrayal of Judas and his death. And now Matthias is the 12th disciple. We see all this information. But as we said last week, information that can be transformational when we begin to see that God is ever working. He is still on plan A. Folks, I, I promise you, he will always be on plan A. A. He will never go to plan B. He's faithful God. He's sovereign God. But as we come to chapter 2, things are beginning to change a little bit. Not on the faithfulness of God, but all of a sudden, instead of information, now we have a scene that seems bigger than life. I love the way that John uh, MacArthur describes this transition. And he says, in chapter 1, the disciples wait for the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, he comes. In chapter 1, the disciples are equipped. In chapter 2, they are empowered. In chapter 1, his disciples are held back. In chapter 2, they are sent forth. In chapter 1, the Savior ascended. In chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends. That's what Luke describes in the first four verses of Acts chapter 2. Look what he says. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It's one of the most amazing scenes in all the Bible. The Bible is filled with amazing scenes. The the splitting of the Red Sea so the Israelites could walk across on dry ground. Uh, The resurrection of Christ. Christ resurrecting Lazarus from the dead. We have some a lot of scenes that are really kind of miraculous. And yet this, I, I promise you, would have to be in one of the top ten. For you're just going to make a list of something that is hard to comprehend, hard to even illustrate in our own mind, this would be one of those times that God himself would come and dwell permanently in those who have placed their faith in the work of Christ. That all the promises of Christ that he made in John chapter 14 and 15, 16 and 17, when he was describing to the disciples what would happen, when he was doing the high priestly prayer in John 17, all these things now coming into reality in these verses. And in the midst of all of this, the church is born. The church that Christ establishes. In the Old Testament, we have the people of God or the Israelites. God chooses them. He calls them. And he's their God. And in the New Testament, we begin to see now that the gospel is there and Christ has lived a perfect life, died for the sins of those that would place his trust in them, risen from the dead on the third day, now ascended to heaven by the Father's side, praying for us. And he calls out the church. Who's the church? 
You've probably heard it before. People say, well, the church isn't a building, it's a people. And they would be right. It's not just the local church, but it's church universal. That's not universalism. That's just that every nation, tribe of those who have placed trust in Christ, they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we have a local church, Cornerstone, and yet there's this church that's worldwide. And at the consummation of all things, when, when Christ comes back and collects his bride and to him, we will be overwhelmed. I promise you, we will be overwhelmed by the size of that church, the beauty of that church, the variety of that church. That truly people from every walk of life came and they placed their trust in this Christ. And it made us family. It made us the bride of Christ. It made us the church. When we look at Acts chapter 2 in these first verses, it's what we call the beginning of the church age. Now remember in the Bible, it's one story. It's one story. From Genesis to Revelation, it's one story. And it unfolds. We have a, a part that we call the Old Testament. We have a part that we call the New Testament. But it's one story of God working his redemption of us who fell away and rebelled against him and how he redeems us through the work of his son and one day will collect us all together to be with him. That it says what we covered months ago in Revelation, that, that he will be our God and we will be his people. Well, the beginning of what we call the church age begins right here. And the sight must have been amazing. We have mighty rushing winds. We have tongues of fire over each one. We have speaking to one another in a language where everybody could understand one another, even if they were not familiar with that language before. And all the result of the promise that God met and that God kept. The mention of the sound of rushing winds and the tongues of fire often calls uh, us in the modern era to wonder what was going on. But when you look in the Old Testament, wind and fire are two things that we see that are quite typical of uh, describing God and his might and his power and his moving. And so when we look in the Old Testament, we see now that this mighty rushing wind comes in, that fire is there. It's not really surprising as we begin to look at how God has revealed himself before, describe the power of what he's doing. But before we get into the spectacular, I don't want us to miss something that I believe is just as spectacular there in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. The word Pentecost literally means 50. And it describes a significant time in the Old Testament that was the 50 days after the Passover, what they would call the Feast of Weeks. And the Feast of Weeks, it was seven Sabbaths. Seven times seven is what? 49. And so it's the day after. It's the 50th day. And so if you go back and you look at all the different things in the Old Testament, the Passover, and you see all these different feasts, this is a feast that they would have that was significant. Seven Sabbaths, the next day, 50 days after Passover. And it was really significant. They It was... Uh, uh, celebration of God in the harvest and really the grain harvest. And uh, the priests sometimes would, would bake two loaves of bread for God's faithfulness and, his, and their thankfulness for that. 
This is all described in Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 16. Let's just take a peek back there just so that you know that I'm not making this up, that we connect Old Testament to New Testament. We see prophecy and we see the fulfillment of prophecy. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 9 and 10. And you shall count seven weeks, begin to count the seven weeks from the time of the sickle is, is first put to the standing grain, and then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of a free will offering from your hand, which you shall give to the Lord your God that blesses you. Now we read that and in modern times we're going, okay, all these feasts and this tribute and they're taking up another offering and they're doing all this. And it's really not really significant to us. And yet I want you to understand that for us to grasp what's happening here with Pentecost, it really is significant. Pentecost is already one of the most significant days to the people of God in the Old Testament, but but it really should have that sig- this significance to us, and that uh, when we look back and for those who have kind of put the numbers together, not only was it significant for this feast, but it was also a day that they celebrated the giving of the law to Moses. Go back and you can put those together. No, not every scholar believes that. Not every scholar sits down and goes, okay, this is our firm belief. But many, many, at least the ones I trust, you know, see the significance of that. Now, now, why would that be significant? If this truly was a day that they commemorated when God gave Moses the law. Remember, wrote down the commandments, some tablets. Why, that, why would that be significant if Pentecost truly did align with that? In the celebration of that. Stay with me. I mean, think down. The law that God gave us that directs us, that corrects us, and at the same time revealed to us our sin. And now the coming of the Holy Spirit comes, and now what happened in between the old Pentecost and this new Pentecost? Christ has lived, he has died, and he's risen again. So we have this law that convicts us of sin, shows us our sin, shows us that there's no way that we can on our own please a holy God. Christ comes as the only answer that God gives us for our sin. And now what happens on the day of Pentecost? God's spirit comes and dwells among believers to do this, guys, to empower us to live out in victory over the law in sin. It's a complete package. One day there was a given the law, and now is the day they're given the spirit. In the law, we see the law of the old covenant, but now we see the spirit of the, the new covenant. Charles Spurgeon always has interesting quotes. And this is what he said about the significance of this Old Testament. Pentecost, the New Testament Pentecost, the connection between the giving of the law, the celebration of the giving of the law to Moses, to the coming of the Spirit. He said this, Under the old covenant, the command was given, but under the new covenant, the will and the power to obey are bestowed upon us by the Holy Spirit. No more have we the law upon stone, but the Spirit writes the precept upon the fleshly tablets of the heart. Moses on the mount can only tell us what to do, but Jesus ascended on high, pours out the power to do it. Now we are not under the law, but under grace. 
and the Spirit as our guiding force. That's a mouthful, but guys, this is our hope. The victory of Christ and now the power to not only be able to, to, to do the will of God, but to desire the will of God. How many of you have ever done the will of God because you were afraid not to do the will of God, but the reason wasn't that you desired to do the will of God? Have you ever been in that place before? That you did it, maybe you would, you know, grow up and, and then you heard the pastor say, man, you step out of line, God's gonna get you. Or maybe it was mom and dad that said, you step out of line. We're gonna be God's helpmate and we're gonna get you. No, I, I don't know how you heard it, but somehow, sometimes we have obedience because of fear. And I would rather have obedience out of fear than no, than, uh, than no obedience at all. I've told this story many times of some of those Friday nights of my teenage years and, and I had a curfew that was earlier than everybody else's. I always complain about it. They never changed it. And, but I knew that I had to walk past my dad's lazy boy with dad in it. And there was a lot of things that I didn't do at 9 and 9.30 and 10 and 10.30 because I knew at 11 o'clock I would have to walk past that chair. My heart was in it. My desire was not in it. My will was not in it. But I did it because I knew that there would be my dad to give accountability to. Now, is that better than just messing up on a lot of things? Yes. But please, put, let's put this together. When the Holy Spirit came upon them, Not only does it empower them for holy living, but it gives them the desire to want to do holy living. They're not doing it just because they're in fear of standing before God one day, which we should really have a holy fear. Let's not apologize for that because it's biblical, okay? That one day we will stand before our Creator and give account of our lives. And yet, is Christianity just about obedience because of fear? No. God sends His very Spirit to inspire us, to empower us for holy living. Have you ever done the right thing, even for the wrong reason, and afterward had the blessing that it was the right thing? I mean, sometimes marriage is like that. I mean, let's just be serious. Sometimes we do the right thing, and sometimes it is out of fear. (laughs) But other things, we do the right thing because it's the right thing. And maybe our heart's not in it. Maybe we just aren't in there with gusto. And yet we do it. And yet we receive the blessing of obedience afterwards. A happy marriage, a happy wife, happy husband. That's just a small part here. And that's a very human kind of illustration of what is happening here when God gives his very spirit to dwell in us. I mean, let's not discount that there are so many things that the Spirit is going to do. It's going to seal us into the day of redemption. I mean, I can start going down a long list of the role of the Spirit in the believer's life. But don't miss what is happening here. That God fills them with the Holy Spirit so they can be empowered to live out the Christ life and to take this message of the gospel into the ends of the world. Now, the coming of the Holy Spirit, God gave us a miraculous ability on that day for them to speak in a, spectac- in a special way that they understood each other in their own language. Look at verses 4 through 8. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under earth, uh, under heaven. Now, now why had they come? Let's just pause here for a second. It's the feast. You were supposed to, if you lived within a certain distance to Jerusalem, you were supposed to come and participate in this feast. So, so Jerusalem is more maxed out in population at this present time for this celebration. And God uses this variety of people that have come and he begins to use those that, let's just use a modern illustration. Some would speak French, some German, some Italian, some uh, Japanese, some Korean, some this. I mean, I don't know that those folks were there speaking in those languages, but it'd be like what it would be today if we just had a United Nations of, of folks gather this morning and they came and they spoke different languages than us, but known languages. And that's what's happened here. Verse 6. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language? This text, uh, along with 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, uh, have put a lot of questions into uh, the heart of followers of God about speaking in tongues. There's no way this morning that I'm going to open up that, not because I uh, won't address it. I will talk to you about that. There's other times that will come in the scripture and we'll talk about uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. We're not going to avoid this subject, but I want you to know where your pastor stands on what my belief of this text is. I believe that God did a miracle that day. And I believe that on that day, uh, that this is a different mentioning of tongues than what we would find in the Corinthian passage. I think here they were known language. God just gave the ability for everybody to understand, be able to speak in a way where they could understand so that if all of a sudden there was a person speaking Korean here and there's a person speaking German here, that I would still hear and understand. I don't believe that this was a a, a special holy utterance like we might see in in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. I, I believe that what we see here. It's just God doing a miracle. What would be the purpose of that miracle? Of God bringing all these people together and to be able to understand one another. The unity of the church. The birth of the church. The power of the spirit. I mean, we can go into all kinds of different discussions that are interesting. But do you believe in speaking in tongues like in the the, the first Corinthians 12 through 14 way. Is that a special holy gift that you get with the filling of the Holy Spirit? Well, we can talk about that another day. I do not shy away from that whatsoever. Uh, I'll give you what my thoughts are on that. But th- I don't believe that this is first Corinthians 12 through 14. I believe that this right here is that they were able miraculously to understand one another, but they were known languages. And if you have questions about that afterwards or this week, give me, give me a, a call or a text. We'll sit down and I'll kind of give you my reason why I believe that. But here's the, the thing, guys. 
Why is it that we're so curious all the time about the things that would divide us instead of seeing what God does to unite us? I mean, I'm just as curious. I'm just as argumentative. I'm just as much kind of in my roots of what I believe as anybody else. And so I have friends of every persuasion. And I have friends from a background, the most influential spiritual person in my life, my uncle, is a Pentecostal holiness preacher. But man, we are so one in Christ. You know, we've never discussed, even though I lived with him for a year when my parents were divorcing, and that was my where God placed me in his sovereignty to be in a pastor's house. First time that I went to service with them, and you got to remember, I'm a young kid. I'm like six years old. And I go into this church, and one person started praying, and then I'll send another person, another person, and pretty soon, I don't know that it was another language, but it sounded like another language because everybody was praying together. That was strange for this young man who never had seen that before. Folks, my, my purpose this morning isn't to open up this, I don't want to call it even a can of worms, because I, I think there's biblical reasoning that we can come to. I, I just want you to understand where your pastor is coming from. So, hey man, right there, they're speaking in tongues. I don't believe that this is the speaking in tongues in this passage that a lot of people would relate to as far as speaking in tongues as they would use that term uh, as far as a holy language, I, I believe that these are the common languages of men and just God gave them the supernatural ability that day to understand one another. And you are more than entitled to disagree with the pastor. You are more entitled to have all kinds of your own opinions. But I'm talking Acts chapter 2, not for 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Is that clear? <laughs> Because what I want to see here is God is doing something not, not to start giving special gifts at this point. I don't believe that he's giving special gifts. For this. I think what he's doing is unifying a diverse people and bringing them in the oneness of Christ. As much as we are called out to be a different and unique people, that different and unique people is in the sight of who? The world or of God? Of the world, you know, we're, we're to be different. We're a royal priesthood. We are a peculiar people. And so in, in this world, we should be peculiar. But in the eyes of God, I, I see Him unifying us as a body of Christ. We'll see later, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer male or female. There's no longer master and slave. All these things that would be divisional things in that society. Now he says, no, in Christ you are one people. And I believe that that's what he's starting here. I personally believe, just so you know where your pastor stands, that this is the beauty of the gospel on display for those that day that God had planned through the ages. But think about it. People were gathered from many regions of the Feast of the Weeks, and as verse 5 says, now they were dwelling in, uh, in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven. And look what happens in verse 6. And at the sound of the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. It's pretty overwhelming. I mean, think about uh, if you are experiencing that. Maybe the closest I've ever gotten in my 61 years, took a trip to Israel 
And uh, we're having the Lord's Supper at what is considered the empty tomb. We don't know that it really is the empty tomb, but it's an empty tomb that they celebrate to be the empty tomb. And so we're having the Lord's Supper there. It's near the end of our 12 days traveling through uh, Israel, Jerusalem, the Holy Land. And it was really a special time. I mean, it was a really special time. Me and, and 11 other pastors, and, and we're taking the, the, the Lord's Supper, and we're just in the Word, and God is just kind to us. And all of a sudden, we start singing this song. And we start singing a song, and over on the other hill, we had seen a large group get out of a bus, and, and they were not speaking English. Uh, for the most part, I think that it was Spanish. It may have been some other form of a of, uh, romantic language like Spanish, but, but they were singing over here, and there was a bunch of them. We had 12 here, and they probably had about 100 there, and they started singing a song. And over on the other hill, there was another group, and they weren't speaking English, and they were not speaking Spanish or some form of that, but it was much more of a, a guttural kind of language. German or something, Romanian or something like that. And, and guys, I, I can't tell you how overwhelming it was that as three groups of people were singing, it was in unison. And I believe that that's probably as close to heaven as I'm going to get while walking this earth. Were we speaking in tongues? No, we were just speaking in our own language, and yet there was an understanding that God gave us that we were singing the same song. It's not all of a sudden that I understood Spanish, and it's not all of a sudden that I understood whatever this Romanian or German or whatever kind of language. I just I knew that we were of one accord. And because of the kindness of God, I mean it overwhelmed me, guys, that day. It overwhelmed me. That this was the kingdom. This was the bride. That we were God's people. So Bobby, you believe in all kinds of different miracles and so, yeah, you better believe it. I believe that God is such a kind and gracious God that He's always giving us aids to our faith. And sometimes it's the miracles that we do see if we just open our eyes. And yet, here's my frustration. Whenever we start to talk about miracles and the miraculous and something that God is doing that's bigger than life, that we focus on, well, you know, she was lame and then she began to walk. That is great. And especially for her, that's great. Or this was, over here was, you know, this person was going off and all of a sudden uh, didn't have money to pay the bills and, and then looked in the, the mailbox and there was uh, a check for $42.31 and it paid the gas bill. Folks, I, I don't make little of that. God does those kind of things. But if you haven't seen a miracle lately... Come talk to me. Come talk to another believer. Because if we realize how dead we were and how alive we have been made in the work of Christ, we are walking miracles. We truly are, guys. And I'm not trying to be, oh, you know, well, he's just really being kind of spiritual about it. No, no, I truly am being spiritual. We don't know how dead we were. 
We weren't in a coma. We didn't have like a, we're just resting. No, we were dead in our sin. And it is miraculous that we have been brought to life through the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is our hope. This is our miracle. And that allows me to, as I prayed for my dad when he had cancer, for God to, to sustain his life, and yet dad died. I can trust a sovereign, kind, promise-keeping God because he's already displayed the hope that he's given me in Christ. Talked to many people over the years. I just I used to believe in God, but I really don't believe in God because I prayed for this and it didn't happen. I understand the struggle. I don't know that I've ever prayed more fervently than praying for God to heal my dad. Yet my dad placed his faith in Jesus Christ. And I will see my dad again. He did the miracle, folks. Maybe not the miracle in my version of the miracle, but he did a miracle. Because without the miracle of Jesus Christ in my dad's life and in my life, we are destined to be separated forever and ever and ever and ever. Not only from each other, but from holy God. Well, Bobby, that's just, you know, that's all fire and brimstone and, you know, preaching about hell. Folks, that's a reality. That's a reality. I, I agree that when I was growing up, man, that was the sermon every si- single week. It was a, a three-sermon series. Fire, damnation, hell. And then repeat. I mean, I, I... And then I went to a church for all the wrong reasons because all the pretty girls went there. And I sat under expository preaching. And for the first time in my life, I heard the seriousness about a God who's created us and, and given us a, a standard and a law, but that we couldn't keep that law. We rebelled against it. But he completed the story for me. I sat under teaching at First Baptist Lilburn, and I finally heard the rest of the story. That yes, all this part was true. That the law convicted me in my sin. And I was dead in my sin. But Christ gave, came to give me life. And I promise you at 15 I was still much more interested in the pretty girls in the choir. I who cannot sing at all join the youth choir. <laughs> pretty girl there, pretty girl there. One of those pretty girls girl by the name of Carly Hendricks. <laughs> Sovereign God. <laughs> I mean, does that make sense, guys? If we want to be overwhelmed by the miraculous, can, can, can you see the miraculous here? I'm not saying that we don't have discussions about what does it mean to speak in tongues. I'm, I'm not saying that we don't discuss, you know, what's really going on here. There's a time and a place for us to do that, and, and we can cover that when we get to Corinthians. I'm not going to shy away from teaching what I believe to be doctrinal truth. But here, I want us to be overwhelmed this morning that this isn't about tongues. This is about a God who does a miracle to bring a church alive and together in unity that ones that could not understand, could not agree, were overwhelmed that God had called them into oneness. God starts his church in power and unity. 
He starts his church by giving us the indwelling of his very spirit to empower us for holy living. And all the promises of Old Testament, all the promises that, that Christ made in John 14, 15, 16, and 17, God kept his promise. And he began to indwell the life of the believer. That's the miracle, folks. That's the miracle. But we don't sidestep these other curious things. But can we make much of what is the main thing? That this ragtag bunch of guys that could never even agree with one another, that could not even get their sense of direction right, are now empowered to go out and preach the gospel to the ends of the world and turn the world upside down. Because they went to seminary? No. Because all of a sudden they studied a little bit more? No. Because the very power of God came and dwelled within and empowered them to both remember the teachings of Christ, it says, but also to go out and to live this changed life. This is our hope, guys. You want hope for your marriage? You want hope for your business? You want hope for your children? You want hope All these things, there's so many factors going on, but the hope is Jesus Christ. Well, Pastor, I would expect you to say that because you're a pastor, and so, of course, Jesus is always going to be the answer. I don't belittle medical problems. I don't belittle estranged marriages. I don't belittle difficulties in, in parenting and the challenges that are there. Those are real. There is, those are heavy. But the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, gives us victory, guys. Gives us hope in the most hopeless of situations. It empowers that husband or that wife to say, I'm sorry, I have messed up. When that those words never would have come from them. But now that the Holy Spirit has gripped their heart and they have truly died to self and empowered by the Spirit, they act like a different person. Well, does that really happen, Pastor? I can give you testimony after testimony after testimony. We love it when the lame walk, when the blind see. I don't diminish that. That'd be pretty cool. I'd like to see that happen. But as miraculous as that is, the miracle is that Christ brought you from death to life. And he's given you hope now. Not under the law, but under grace to be obedient and to love the law. Instead of seeing it like, man, I guess I have to. A desire to want to. And I can promise you, Bobby Lincoln would never have done that on his own. But the spirit of the living God dwelling in Bobby allows me to, to have a passion. When, when, when I'm obedient to the spirit for holy living. That's the miracle. Next week, we will talk about some of the other things that happen here because I think they're important. I think we'll see them clear when we begin to see Peter's sermon that he begins to preach. And so we haven't left this passage. We'll, we'll clear up some things. If you have questions, text me, call me. I'll buy the coffee. Uh, those are interesting things. See the miracle this morning. See the miracle. 
Let's pray. Father God, we love you and we thank you. Father, I would love to, to witness the, the spectacular physical things that you've done. That Father, when there was this lame man and, and then he began to walk, Father, when there was a leper and he was cured completely of his leprosy, Father, to say that we would not be attracted to that, to say that we weren't being in awe and overwhelmed with that, Father, I think we're foolish. We would be so drawn to that. But Father, will you help us? To understand the miracle that you did in Acts chapter 2. That you, holy God, came and dwelled simple man. And that the only way you could do that is if that man had been totally redeemed. Not partially redeemed. Fully redeemed by the work of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that every living Christian is a testimony of the miracle of your faithfulness. That you're not just a promise maker, but you are a promise keeper. And that every promise you've ever made has been made yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Father, we don't make little of all the miraculous we don't make little of, of, of all the, the strange things that men from different backgrounds and different languages could understand. Father, we make much of that. But Father, that pales in comparison to what you established as you brought people from every walk of life, every background, and you put them together and you called them your bride and you made them a church. Father, will you, will you allow that miracle to happen at Cornerstone? And the church down the street and the church down this street and the one over here and the one over there, Father, will you display your might that you bring a very different, peculiar, different people and you unite us so much in Christ that that is our mission and that is the gospel that we take out in the world that Christ is the Redeemer and He's the hope, the only hope of all men. We love you and we thank you. We pray this in the hope that is Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.